This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. People think about trauma as, oh, that thing that happened a long time ago. But that's not the issue because that thing is over. It happened last year, 10 years ago. It's not happening today. But the traces that leaves inside of you are happening now. And so when you're traumatized, you try to not have all the sensations and feelings and you turn on the music loudly or you drink or you take drugs to make those feelings go away. And then to actually have your feelings becomes very difficult. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <sighs> Today's a biggie. We're in a series right now called For the Love of You. We wanted to have a series where we were able to find our way back to ourselves. Very grounded in healing, very grounded in recovery, self-awareness, authenticity. Like Because I think there's just no way to pretend like this this suffering and trauma is not going on right now. You know, I mentioned on social media not too long ago that I had left the world of like Christianese and sort of trite 
platitudes like way behind in the rear view mirror. And the reasons were numerous, but one of them is that this sense of faith words being used in a way like, well, just let go and let God, you know, or God won't give you anything you can't handle. Like the most unhelpful ways to respond to somebody else's suffering. And they're not comforting. They're, they're isolating. They make you feel lonely. They make you feel lost and hopeless. And they just, they're, they're, they're not true. So right now, like I said, we're in this for the love of you series, and we are exploring all the ways that we can and should take care of ourselves mentally, physically, spiritually. And that includes giving ourselves and other people the space to process their trauma and to not feel compelled to tidy it up with like pat answers, right? Or this notion in any way that if we just prayed a little harder, or if we just did a little better, if we just tried a little harder, right? We could just get over it because as our incredible guest today, so wisely put it, which has now become communal vernacular, our body keeps the score. And no matter how we sugarcoat, whatever it is we're facing, no matter how much harder we work to forget it, how much we stuff it down, how much we numb it, hoping it will just go away until we face it and we walk through it, our bodies will remind us that there's still a reckoning to be had. That's just true. That's just facts. This is just science. So that brilliant soul who gave us the insight that the body does indeed keep the score is on the show with us this week. And he has written the book, like literally and figuratively on working through suffering and healing from trauma. So the body keeps the score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has topped every book list for years now, New York times bestseller times a million. It was released in 2015. It's still considered one of the best books on how to understand and treat PTSD by learning the science and then connecting your mind and your body connection. Like we have, we have what we need to heal. You have it. I have it. Nobody can give it to me from outside of me. It is inside of us, which is incredibly hopeful, isn't it? That no matter what, and of course, Dr. Vanderkolk deals with severe trauma. So we're not talking about, you know, and he, his research is built upon people whose trauma was absolutely catastrophic. And even there, we have the tools inside of us to heal. He has spent 30 years studying trauma in the body and researching what is actually effective here, what, it, what actually helps us recover. Back in, in fact, 1984, he set up one of the very first research centers in the U.S. to study traumatic stress in ordinary people like you and me. And so, of course, now he speaks and lectures worldwide and helps the general public understand how our bodies process trauma. And all of that has result has resulted in establishing the Trauma Research Foundation, which keeps this a clinical staff researching best practices and sharing those findings with leaders in our society, educators, policymakers, law enforcement. His work is profound. And 
I mean, I tell him this, but it has meant so much to me. I read the body keeps the score shortly after it came out. And I had never heard anything like that before. I, I hadn't heard anybody teach that before. Now, as you know, if you've been in my world for a while, embodiment practices, I have learned so much in the last five years about those, but Dr. Vanderkolk was probably the first one that I heard suggest that trauma is stored in our bodies and thus our bodies are the avenue to heal. His book has meant so much to the whole world, to be honest with you, to not just acknowledge our own suffering, but to find ways through it. And it's just, he's special. And as he tells us, we do not have to hustle ourselves through suffering. We have the tools and they are free. I'm so grateful for him. He is interesting and curious and brilliant and gentle. You'll see like he's a gentle, generous soul. I was so excited to interview him. I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> I, I could not sleep. I was so overwhelmed to meet him and to hear from him because he's meant so much to me. So, well, you're going to love this. You guys, whatever trauma you have ever experienced, this is your episode. I'm so happy to share my conversation with the brilliant, the wonderful and kind Dr. Bessel Vanderkoek. Dr. Vanderkolk, I am so honored to meet you. So very delighted to have you on the For the Love podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be here. Well, your work has meant so much to so many of us. So for my listeners who are new to you, I filled them in a little bit already about who you are and your incredible credentials. But I wonder if you would be willing to rewind just a little bit first to your earlier years before we kind of get into your work. I'd love to hear more about younger you and your origin story of curiosity, as it were, when you were traveling the world as a teenager, who were you then? I just, we'd like to know where you came from and kind of what formed you as a kid? Oh, that's a very complex question, of course. Yes, it is. So I grew up in the Netherlands, and I was born at the end of the Second World War in an occupied country where about half of my birth cohort died of self-starvation. And so I like to think that I was born in maybe the worst year of human history. That was a very bad year, 1943. And so as a kid, I saw a lot of stuff. And I also was a very sickly child that somehow must have formed my character. And I was also a very curious child. And people always said that I was more creative than some of the other kids they knew. The Dutch educational system, you have a humanities route and a science route. And I was the best poet among the scientists and the best scientist among the poets. And that has continued to be at the core of my character is that I really try to figure out how things work. But at the same time, I know that most things cannot be explained rationally. Uh, and so, so I love to live on that interface. Part of my education is I grew up learning six different languages. So I learned to think in, in different paradigms that are not contradictory to each other, supplementary to each other. Yeah. Mm, mm. I also read that you at one point were interested in becoming a monk. 
which is a completely True. different path than the one you chose. What drew yeah, you to know, that? You know, like, yeah, that's true. I was very drawn to this monastery in France called Thézé, and I seriously thought about becoming a monk, and I thought I want to travel the world, so instead of going to the monastery, I went to Hawaii. But in some ways, there, you know, going meeting with God or meeting going to the South Pacific, like what's the difference? Yeah, sure, same. <laughs> but, but, um, well, the world is grateful that you chose the path that you did. My introduction to you was like so many other people, which was, of course, through the body keeps the score. Which oh, I have so much to say. I don't know where to start, but I read it when it first came out, and I hadn't heard any of that work before. I hadn't, I hadn't come across a researcher like you with that sort of theory and that sense of embodiment that was new to me. Now it's what I think has been fantastic is that your work has now paved the way. If that was a fringe conversation back then, it is finding its way to the center of mental health and of recovery. But at the time for me, it was absolutely groundbreaking. And of course, in some ways, I don't say anything original in that book. Sure. You know, for when you live in this world, you live in a world with people who study mothers and babies, people study families, you hang out with anthropologists. I learned I, when I started to write my book about the body, my friends Peter Levine and Pat Ogden, big, big time body workers, said, But Bessel, how, how can you write a book about a body? You don't really know anything about the body. And I said, Oh, yeah, I forgot. That's right. And they said, shall we teach you about the body? And so they taught me about the body. And so so I, I really put a lot of different strands together. We're really new to this language and definitely new to the practices. The narrative we all bought into for so long, it's kind of hard to overcome. And, and we haven't had a lot of teachers teach us how to be in our body as a healer. I'd love to hear, you know, I mean, you've done groundbreaking work on how trauma physically, physiologically reshapes our brains. And then of course, how that can limit us from having the capacity to just fully engage, to, to enjoy ourselves, to have meaningful relationships, a host of limitations. I would like to hear if you can sort of parse it out. When was it when this started coming to you, this particular space, this this idea, because I, I can't imagine that you had a ton of predecessors to draw from who had combined this research in the way that you have. No, people had not combined the research with the practice, but there is a long tradition of very good body work. Of course, the body work has always been on the periphery, in part because medicine has never bought into working with the body. Yes. And insurance companies certainly will not pay for you to go to a body worker or to work with your body. So I think our social systems, including our financial systems, very much bought into you either take a drug, take a pill, which I call a post-alcoholic culture. Like if you feel bad, you just swallow something to make yourself feel better or you yak and try to understand what's going on. Yeah. And I think the culture has a hard time adding additional things. Although I know hundreds of people, I meet people all the time who are extremely good at what they do. For example, there's a group of guys 
called the Holistic Life Foundation that works in the inner city schools in Baltimore and works beautifully with kids' bodies. We have a program here in the Berkshires called Shakespeare in the Courts, that if you're a juvenile delinquent, the judge may condemn you to become a Shakespearean actor. Uh, and to actually stand up there and say, <laughs> this is the mentor of our discontent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> ah, the punishment. Uh. <laughs> and, and these kids are terrified. But when they get to inhabit their roles, they go like, oh, that's what it feels like physically to be a powerful king. This feels like physically means to be a killer of the emperor. That's how it feels like. So you can own your body, but, you know, Insurance companies will not pay for no, you taking won't. Shakespeare course. They won't pay for you taking your yoga program, and they don't pay for your doing your martial arts program. So, to some degree, it's the domain of the privileged. That's right. Uh, that right. in our society, if you're poor and you have to work all the time at very low wages, you have no access to any of this good stuff. Mm, I know, and that yeah. that conundrum is so enormous it's hard to know where to chip away at that well but we better chip away at it you know because it's a huge issue and if you go to countries where the tendency that you see in america has taken to its extreme like if you go to latin america you see real inequality or india you go like what devastating effect it has on the overall well-being of all human beings yeah certainly So, so at the end the issue is to a largely political. Hmm. Of course it is. It is the engine of capitalism. And that is a proven to be a, a stubborn beast to go toe to toe with. I know, I think some of it too comes with our culture being willing to normalize body work. Last year, I went through some pretty intense trauma in my own life and with a, a kind of a very shocking and unexpected divorce and in all the ways that create trauma in your body. And I had a friend send me to a body healer and that's not something I'd ever done before. I didn't understand anything about energy healing. I thought it sounded woo woo and crazy, but I was so broken, so dysfunctional. I decided to give it a try. And it was pretty powerful what that work kind of unlocked in me, where it allowed me to grieve, provided a bit of a channel for me to to begin to process. And so I talked about it online. And so even just as we begin to try new practices and then discuss it, you know, in positive terms with one another, that conversation can grow and can develop. And I'm hopeful for it. You say that reclaiming your body Reclaiming your body is a central issue of overcoming trauma. This is just so important. It's so important because trauma is so ubiquitous. And you say your body gets stuck in heartbreak. I I just can't tell you how true this has been for me this last year. And I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and what happens in our bodies with trauma. What, what do you mean that our body gets stuck in heartbreak? It's important that the the whole issue of neuroscience coming in there is very important to help us to understand things. And that's what we have these layers in our brain. And so the first layer is what a baby comes in the world with. So babies can already breathe and suck and poop and pee and you know, crying is about it, what they can do. And we continue to be able to do those things, but we ignore them. 
But that's where trauma hits, in the area of your brain having to do with the housekeeping of your body. So once you get traumatized, that very primitive part of your brain that we have in common with all mammals at least, is really in charge of trying to make you, uh, to keep you safe. And so when you get traumatized, that alert system goes in overdrive or the alert system shuts itself down and you don't feel anything anymore. So it's very primitive. And then on top of that, you have your language and your interaction with people and that come later. But that very primitive system of am I safe? Is this dangerous? Can I sleep? Is really the most affected. And you cannot get there by talking or understanding or figuring things out. You really need to have the experience of what it physically feels like to feel safe. And a very important part of that is that you know you learn that sense of safety from each other and that we are social creatures like you know you asked me about my background I, I used to live in Chicago and if I had a date I would always take them to the Brookfield Zoo and hold forth to my date about monkeys and we are monkeys who are just very social creatures the monkey researchers are, are my great heroes huh? And you get to see how we need each other. Huh? And so for you to feel safe, you need to f know what it feels like to be held by somebody who, who is there for you huh? and to have a physical sensation of what that contact feels like. And of course, touch is not part of our culture. Uh, it's interesting. You live in Texas, so you are closer to the Latin culture which actually has much more touch. I just reviewed that stuff recently. Somebody did a study looking at couples in a cafe in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and they touch each other on the average 73 times during an hour. And in London, when people were together as a couple, they touch each other zero times in one hour. <laughs> so some cultures are much more wow. touch-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, but the touch is an important part of the whole thing. Yeah. You know, when I kind of look backward over the last calendar year, what were the elements of my genuine healing? Because I've come so far in a year. My people are probably at the top of the list. I think them holding me and laying in their laps and just really like skin to skin touching and, and me, them was dramatically comforting. And then ultimately, I think I think healing shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples guys. It's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I would love to hear you talk. So we've got physical touch. 
which is genuine. That is a very real best practice. How else do we begin to reclaim our own bodies and reprocess trauma in a way that we can heal? Well, I think anything that allows you to be in touch with your body is in principle good. So we just funded a touch study, but basically touch has never been studied. No, we know everything about vision. We know everything about audition. We know a lot about smell, but the issue of touch, which is such an important part, has barely been studied. So, so we're still on the edge of things. But I did a, a study, the first study funded by NIH, on uh, the use of yoga for trauma, for example. And the results were amazing in that people really, as a group, very traumatized people, started to move very much in the, in the right direction. And the larger effect sizes, larger uh, results than any psychiatric drug, basically. Wow. Uh, and wow. Then, then you run into the limits of science because we published three scientific studies on that. And I didn't see a single psychopharmacology clinic turn into a yoga studio because uh, there's no money in yoga. Of course there's uh, not. Uh, and so people say, oh, no, that's sort of, that's hokey. No, actually, we publish these papers in major scientific journals. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, so so build a culture. But then people say, oh, I'm a big advocate of, of yoga. I said, no, I think yoga is very helpful. But then you go to China, and I've been to China a number of times over the years. It's a tough country. And you see people in the parks do Qigong. You see people in the parks dancing with each other, which you don't see in this country. You go like, they do that, not for the tourists, but they do that in order to cope with and survive in a very tough environment. Huh? You go to Africa, same thing, very tough place to be, but you see people making music together, dance together, and that's a sing together. And that communal synchronous activity gives people a sense of pleasure and comfort. And that is not very alive and well in many places, maybe as the exception of Austin. Austin sort of has a bit of a reputation of being a very musical place and an uh, open place. And that's maybe where people move there because you have a culture of where people actually do try to be in sync with each other in some ways. Huh? But the pandemic, of course, is wreaking havoc with that. Absolutely. Right. Cutting us off from one another, our ability really to touch each other and be in community spaces. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of the Nagoski sisters who wrote Burnout. They're, no, I'm not actually, no. Oh, it's, these are some incredible younger thinkers. They're sisters to doctors, and they wrote a book called Burnout. And it essentially, their catchphrase is moving you through the stress cycle because our body keeps the score. And we store up all that stress and anxiety and trauma. It lives in our bones and in our muscles and in our breath and in our brains. And they, their research, they said, was unambiguous, absolutely unambiguous, that the number one way to begin to move anxiety, stress, and trauma through your body was movement, what you just said. And it's wide. It could be yoga. It could be dancing. But, see, but probably not any sort of movement. For example... You know, I admire people who, who are runners or people who go on treadmills, but you don't get that sense of synchrony with other people. I think, but at the, at the core, you know, this is 
uh, not a scientific observation, it's a human observation, that at this, the source of pleasure in human beings is to be in sync with other people. Huh? You go to a volleyball game on the 1st of July, and nobody's particularly good at what they're doing, but everybody's giggling because they hit the ball across the net. Huh? When you try to make a little music with people and sit people in their drums and they have their flutes, the pleasure of getting in sync with each other is the source of pleasure. I think all pleasure has to do with people getting in sync with each other in one form or another. So these solitary activities probably don't, to my mind, don't have the same sense of, of mammalian pleasure that's at the core of feeling good about yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in your position, it would be a stronger, healthier choice to do yoga in a studio with other people than home alone in your living room. Which is what most people do. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I do yoga by myself sometimes, but it's not so fun. But I go to a studio where I'm by far the stiffest, most awkward person, and it's still much more pleasurable to do it by myself. In addition to these various ways to experience healing through connection with other people, through synchronicity, through touch, what are there, if you believe there are, other ways in which we can become a little bit more embodied on our own? What are some of those practices look like? I think a meditation practice. Yeah. Or an outward bound pro process. Mm. You know, people talk about it. Oh, it's so blissful to go to meditation. When you're traumatized, doing meditation is very hard. Yes. Because, you know, the, people think about trauma as, oh, that thing that happened a long time ago. But that's not the issue because that thing is over. It happened last year, 10 years ago. It's not happening today. But the traces that leaves inside of you are happening now. And so when you, you know, when you're traumatized, you try to not have all the sensations and feelings and you turn on the music loudly or you drink or you take drugs to make those feelings go away. And then to actually have your feelings becomes very difficult. But if you go to a meditation group and everybody else goes through the same experience and you're having a hard time, you share it with other people, but it's still you need to confront yourself. You need to really allow yourself to be by yourself. For example, uh, people ask me about things all the time, and I say, I don't know. You know, for example, I don't know the simplest things. I don't know how many people wake up in the morning and turn on their television. For me, that would be, it's hell. But I stay in the hotel, and I go to the breakfast room, and there's a TV blaring, like, how can you wake up to a television like that? <laughs> yeah. A lot of people do. But you need to actually tolerate being with you. Mm, that's good. And to feel your breath and to feel your body and to have a loving feeling to a creature that you are. And the, the cultivation of, of self-care, self self-knowledge, taking care of uh, a lot of people have dogs and cats to take care of, and I hope you treat yourself at least as well as your as your dog or your cat. You know, like, and, and you spend it by yourself. Solitude is very important. Yeah, we're not taught to do that. That's just not. I was. I didn't ever have that instruction growing up. I, right. Nobody was really saying that. See, and that's my dream, and I'm saying it now because 
it will never happen, but I thought I'd just throw it out there. And I do it all the time now, is that I wish every classroom from K to 12 had at least a weekly class on the four hours, reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation. Oh, yeah? That's good. That it's as mm. important as anything in the world to get to know yourself and to know what it's like to do yoga, to know how your brain works, to understand how the way you breathe affects the way that you control yourself, to explore the issue of touch, what sort of touch feels good, how much touch do you want, how much proximity do you want with other people. You know, every grade from being a little kid till senior high school, you should have a class that really allows you to explore, to know it both intellectually, but to also know it viscerally, how we don't have to rely on drugs to make us feel better. Uh, we can do it ourselves. We have inborn mechanisms of self-healing. That's mm. a beautiful vision. i am come from educators. My mom was a high school principal. And when I think about what could have been avoided had students really been taught to self-regulate. It's endless. It's absolutely endless. Because of course, so many of our students come to school in trauma, it, coming from traumatic homes. They are, they're triggered all day, every yeah. day, just yeah. trying to stay right. safe. Yeah. And then their behaviors look a certain way, but they just don't right. have any tools. No. And they can't concentrate in their schoolwork. Sure. Of course. Because they are filled with anxiety and anger and fear and, you know, if they're not being helped to regulate themselves, then they will not learn in school and they will not be a success in their lives. So I'm really very much into getting this stuff into schools as early as possible, uh, that people really know, teachers know, and students know, that I can do certain things to feel calm and focused and get the pleasure of learning, you know, where you feel safe. You know, I never had to tell my kids, you have to study hard. My kids were very curious. Uh, and uh, you don't have to say, I, I'll give you an extra exam. Uh, you know, because kids love to learn. But the moment that you feel scared and you feel like unacceptable, your focus goes elsewhere. You don't want to learn anymore. Mm. Which is why we can follow the data and see that communities who have a lot of like trauma and anxiety baked in, it's an arc that goes one direction for the kids because they they have to experience that level of stress and anxiety and trauma in their bodies at all times, which affects what how much they can learn, which affects their capacity, which affects their trajectory and their future. And it just it's like the the fork in the road. Yeah. Which is unfair. It affects medical problems. Yeah, right? of course. Their because physical health. Core, yep. That core part of your brain in the back that's in charge of the safety of your organism goes up towards your frontal lobe, but also goes into your body. And so if you have a lot of trauma, the likelihood that you have IBS and heart disease and immuno immunological illnesses goes way up. Yeah, that's right. Last year, working through my own trauma, I kept telling my family and friends that I thought my heart was literally broken because my chest hurt all the time, all day, every day. I said, I think my heart's broken. And I went to the doctor and he was like, your blood pressure is through the roof, like through the roof. And I'm, oh, I, I thought I was just sad. He's like, no, you, you are sad. And this has created like a pressure cooker in your own body. Cause our body does tell us what's wrong. And you know, what's so interesting doctor is that 
for me, July 11th was the day that everything broke apart for me. And as I was coming up on July 11th, just in this last summer, getting closer to it, I noticed something was going wrong with my body. I couldn't keep my blood pressure in check. I couldn't keep my anxiety in check. I felt achy and headachy. And my body just knew that date was coming up. It just knew it. Like it knew I was coming up on the year. It's amazing. I've seen that so many times that the body has a calendar. And on some dates, suddenly your body starts screaming at you and you go, oh my God, this is exactly the 10 year anniversary of pa-pa-pa. Our smart, smart bodies. I'll tell you though, I found your work to be true because we can teach our bodies a new story. As you would say, you, you can viscerally experience something positive and new. And so on July 11th this year, I was in Bar Harbor, Maine with two of my best friends in the world. We were outdoors. It was gorgeous. We were by the ocean. I got all the way to noon before I remembered it was July 11th. All the way, my I gave my body somewhere new to be and new things to experience and friends they're touching and then me you all rode day your long. Bicycle up the carriage path here in That's Park right. Harbor. And- <laughs> that's right. Well, we rode scooters because we were lazier than that. But that's the good news here. So, can you tell us how our body can rewire? How our brains can rewire? How does this happen biologically? Because this isn't this isn't voodoo. It's real. This is a real path to healing and trauma did happen but it isn't necessarily permanent. We can get unstuck. That's right. So So, so it's indeed, sorry, the most elementary thing is breathing. Our breath is the one thing in our body that happens whether we want it or not, have we breathe. So it happens automatically. And also we can affect it and we can learn to breathe differently. So it's a physiological function that gives us access to some core pieces of ourselves and where you slow down your breath, you focus on the out breath, you activate your parasympathetic nervous system, and you do become calmer. That's, the, that's where you start. And then there's the issue of touch. And there's the issue of movement. And then there's the issue of being in sync with other people. And then there is the issue of doing things with your body that you haven't done before. My favorite topic is basic training in the military. By and large, most 18-year-olds are not the most put-together people. And what does basic training do since Roman times? They put people through extreme exercises. And I bet everybody in basic training regularly thinks, I can't do another day of this. And then there's another day. There's another day. And after 12 weeks, you go, I I did did it. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I did it. So I think... Intense physical challenges are very important for people. So that gets them out of their habits or they thought, I cannot do this. No. And so for that, you need a coach or somebody who cares about you, hopefully, who says, let's do it. Let's try it out. Yeah, let's do a little bit more. But but really challenging yourself, uh, which is hard to do by yourself. First thing I would say, I'm against gun control because everybody should have a gun to shoot our television. And then... <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where that was going. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm com- com- yes, completely in favor of gun control. But so passively lying around is very bad for people. Uh, so uh, actively doing something that is challenging and that's a reset your system in a feeling of I can do some stuff. 
And maybe as you also went through, people can feel very bad about themselves, but if there's a job to be done, you need to work hard. That's a very good thing to counteract the feeling of helplessness. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens in our brains when we engage those sort of embodied practices? What What is literally going on in here that begets healing? Well, but it looks like what happens is our brain depends on circuits of how different parts of our brain talk to each other that determine what's relevant, what is irrelevant, what you need to do. And this, the circuits when you get traumatized, very much go into not getting very confused, not having a sense of pleasure, not having a sense of agency. And when you start doing these hard hard issues, you rewire the brain into circuits of competency and circuits of agency, of I can. So trauma is about there's nothing I can do. And that is trauma. It's like there's nothing you can do you go, oh, I'm done for. And that must have been your experience. Like, my life is over. Everything meaningless. There's nothing I can do. And you collapse. And then somehow you need to get that creature that you are back into moving and taking action. And say, I actually cooked a meal for myself tonight. I picked some veggies in the garden. I planted the garden. You know, I played the piano. <laughs> I did something that makes me feel like I'm alive. Mm, it's so true. And that's why education is so important, because if you're lucky and you go to the schools that I actually went also and that my kids went through, you learn how to make music, and you learn how to dance, you learn how to do things that make you feel alive. If you're poor, you go to a school where athletics are abolished, that's right. There's the no arts. theater. There's mm-hmm. the arts go. Yeah. And people say, you should, you should take tests so you can do as well as the kids in Singapore. But the kids in Singapore have dance classes and they have music lessons and they have fun. And I think fun is a very important part of life. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. it's so good. It's so common sense. It, yeah, it makes it, me wonder exactly. how we got so far away from it. Exactly. I, I'm not saying anything or shattering, you know, like, duh. <laughs> I'm curious, yeah. The Body Keeps the Score, did it come out in 2015? Is that right? The, uh, I think it's 14 by now. It's, what has come from that book, if anything, that surprised you, that you maybe didn't expect? Did you have, you couldn't have had any idea how far that book would go, The its reach? I mean, it is, I, I don't know, I don't have a friend who hasn't read it. I don't have one. We we pass it around. It's informed. It's just taught us. It's, it was your little book was our own mentor into healing, and so that that had to be somewhat shocking. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm astonished. You know, mm. you, you don't really write a book thinking about how many people buy it. You're like this was my fourth book. You know, and the last book before that sold sixty four thousand copies. Which everybody said that's fantastic, that's an amazing number, and so uh, you know not only in this country but it's the best-selling book in Spain and in Australia and you know many different countries. Uh, I was in China just before the pandemic, and my publisher in China said, "Oh, I'm so embarrassed. We have only sold zero point zero zero two percent 
of the Chinese population has bought your book. And they go like, you mean 250,000 Chinese right. bought my book? Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's reimagine success here. Uh, uh, and, and so I'm astounded by how well it's doing. I also don't know what impact it has, actually. It's, it's actually in the last few months, I have the sense that it's getting more traction. But I don't really know what the cultural impact would be, but you cannot help but having so many people read it, it must have some impact. But I don't really know yet what it, what it is. Well, we, we need your work in a new way right now. We've experienced such cultural trauma. And so you couldn't have known that when you wrote it, you know, what we would face together globally. I see what has happened politically as a personal defeat. You know, we, no, we had this naive notion a long time ago that Oh, if one, once we understand trauma and we do something about it, the world will become a much better place and people become very sane people. What I've said, seen instead, now we know a lot about trauma, it's not just me, it's a lot of people who do, is that the politics has been like, what the hell is going on here? Of more cruelty, more racism, more violence. Like, what is going on here? This is sort of exactly the opposite of what we have been talking mm-hmm. about. It's baffling. And, and the lack of compassion is just just actually amazing. So I don't think I've been very successful, actually. My book is sold well, but boy, when you see the political climate, you go like, what the hell? Don't people see what's happening here? Like, mm. I mean, you're up against some real giants because nobody stands to gain when human beings become self-healers. And so, you know, you've got a lot of opposition to your work, and I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's not active opposition, but indeed, I was at, I'm training people in neurofeedback these days, so as part of the things. And neurofeedback is not very well known. It's a very powerful way you can play computer games with your own brainwaves and organize your brain. It's very helpful. What are you curious about right now? What are you what are you exploring? What are you interested in in sort of parsing out a little bit more? Where's your work heading right now? Oh, well, the, the active work I'm doing is the exploration of psychedelics, which I have two little paragraphs in the book. And when people say, what has happened? Say, what's new? I go like, oh, by and large, we don't evolve that fast that every two years we have a completely new life or project. But the new thing is really psychedelics. And our results are really extraordinary. And it's very promising. But my great, great question is, are we as a culture going to be able to handle it? Because you open up Pandora's box, it has enormous healing potential. It also has enormous potential to lo- do a lot of damage. And the last time that these substances were legal and people were researching it, they had very good results, but at the end it all blew up. And I'm very curious if this time we will be able to keep it t- together. And I'm worried. Because the moment these things become legal, like one of the substances now is legal, ketamine, and the capitalism goes in there and say, get your ketamine, we'll send you a box for $1,200. And they don't do therapy. They don't have the very carefully controlled conditions that we 
do in our research where people come in for a whole day after having seen us for a number of months. They stay overnight. We debrief the next morning. It's extremely careful, very interactional. And I am very worried that the culture will not be able to deal with these very powerful agents. But can they make a big difference in people's lives? Absolutely. Hmm. What do you see so far? I am not knowledgeable around this. What are the benefits? What What are you seeing on the positive side? But what we see is, so we, we study it, so it gets approved by the FDA for certain indications, for medical model. Uh, so we see people's PTSD scores go down. But much more interesting, what we see, to my mind, is that people develop a language for themselves. They can talk about themselves and say, this is who I am. This is what's going on with me, which is remarkable because you don't do much talking during these, these experiences. And the other thing is that people develop a remarkable change in self-compassion. They really feel, so oftentimes, you know, I'm sure it happened to you to some degree also, you know, when something bad happens to you, you despise yourself for how weak you are or how you didn't see it coming or how you how you contributed to whatever happened. And so there's a lot of self-hatred and self-loathing is actually the word that I use. With, and, and so if your parents molest you or beat you, this must be because you're a bad kid because if you had been a good kid, they would never have done this to you. And that, those feelings of I'm fundamentally bad stay with you. Huh? And in our study, MDMA, that dramatically changes. I've wow. never seen anything like it. That people come out and they accept themselves for who they are. And I think you cannot take care of yourself unless you accept yourself for who you are. As I said earlier, you need to be your own puppy. You yeah, know? yeah. You take care of that creature yeah, who you are. that sort of nurture. And, and, and that's the great promise of, of these drugs. It can... So when you're traumatized also, and you see this politically, also, I wonder if all these this strange people, if they all grew up in, in violent families, you know, like, how else can you have this attitude, you know, like, lack of compassion, etc. Uh, so when you're traumatized, you have this very narrow view of the world. So you can only see through blinders, and you take these, uh, these drugs, and they are drugs, uh, and suddenly you see a whole different world. You go like, wow, I'd never realized that my way of framing what's, what the world looks like is just one small part of the overall reality that we live in. So it really gives you a sense of, oh, there's a much larger universe than I've been able to encompass with my little mind. And so you leave with a sense of awe and curiosity and openness openness to explore new things and new viewpoints. And that's really what trauma is about, you know, but overcoming trauma. Because when you get traumatized, one thing is another thing. If I put my head on your shoulder, that means that I'm going to rape you. As opposed to maybe he's trying to steady himself because he's falling off. Maybe he likes me. He likes, he's happy to see me. Maybe he's trying to assault me. It may be any number of things. Huh? But when you're traumatized, one thing becomes another thing. And so to open that up and open up the mind to new possibilities is incredibly important. Interesting. Interesting. When are we going to see this from you, this, this bit of work? 
Are you writing a book right now? Or are you just no, actually, wool we're, gathering right now? We're, we're finishing up a book on how to work with the body. Okay. My wife, who is a, a body worker, Nisha Sky, and I, the book is coming along. I wish we had more time. And our scientific data, we're writing up right now, and it will probably get published in a major scientific journal. And then the newspapers may or may not pick it up. Oftentimes, you write something in a scientific journal, it sort of disappears into <laughs> sure. science, science land, you know? Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to learning new things from you and to see what you're discovering in your in your research and what the data shows us. And, you know, I always want to believe in the better angels of humanity to be able to responsibly use the tools that we discover. We have been uh, pretty good history of abusing our best things. And so I, I hear your caution. It's always a combination. It's always a combination. It is. It is. When you do this work, you know, you see amazing people doing incredible work. And most of them are unsung heroes hmm. of people who work in very difficult places yeah. who are just, just extraordinary. Okay, doctor, I'm going to wrap this up with you. This series is called For the Love of You which is obviously why we wanted you front and center here. And so I'm asking everybody in this series, these same questions. Here's the first one. You can answer these however you want. What is one of the primary or maybe even your favorite practice that you engage that just really like honors yourself? That's making music, riding my e-bike over the mountains where I live. It's extremely pleasurable doing our gardens, but my work is extremely sustaining. You know, I love, I love the work I do. And to really see people get better is wonderful. And to do science is great. And to say, how does it work? And for whom does it work? It's very satisfying, you know. Uh, there's a whole range of things. Eating well is wonderful. You know? It is. Feels good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about this? Because you've talked so saliently about how important it is for us to love and accept ourselves. That's kind of the, the breeding ground for healing and recovery. What is What would you just say is your personal favorite thing about your own self that you like about you? My favorite thing. I think my favorite thing about myself is my boundless curiosity and my being more interested in questions than in answers. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> uh, it took yeah. me half my life to learn that approach. I, I grew up in a place where I thought certainty was the goal. And now I know it's curiosity. So that took me a few decades to get. Last question. And I ask everybody this question at the very end of every interview on the show. And I learned it from a priest who I love and respect. And so her question is, and you can answer this however you want. It can be a serious answer or it can be absurd. Anything in between. What is saving your life right now? Saving my life right now. But say, what saved my life is, is the feeling of connection with with people, and with very specific people, with my wife, my kids, with my uh, my colleagues, uh, my friends down the road, knowing that we need each other, and also knowing that not only are they important to me, but also being be, being aware that I'm important for them, huh? and to really know that I have value in their lives, 
and their life is richer because I'm sticking around. And my life certainly is much better because they're sticking around for me. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that beautiful answer. Right now, it just feels like we have forgotten that we belong to one another and that my neighbor's well-being is also mine and their children are my children. And thank you for saying that. That was just such a healing thing to hear today of all days when it just feels like we've all turned on each other. So how wonderful and how wonderful are you? And I just want to say, I am so personally grateful for your work and it has meant an enormous deal to me and it has instructed me and it's led me and ultimately it's helped me heal truly in ways that I didn't think I could because I'd never been broken in those ways before. And so for the billions of hours that you put your hand to research and study and writing and the work that you do, I am grateful. And it has meant so much to my life, which means so much to my kids. And then it means so much to my family. And it means so much to my friends because we're all interconnected. So I just am grateful for you. And I'm excited to continue to learn from you. And whatever you put your hand to, I'm going to sign up for it. So great. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Guys, I had to cut myself off from asking him more questions because we were at the hour mark. I just, he's just a profound scientist and leader and thinker and human in our generation. We're lucky. We're so lucky to get to learn from him and just the way he was talking about people. I mean, I know I told him this at the very end, but I, I miss people speaking like that in a way that is so generous and life-giving toward other humans, so interdependent, so thankful and grateful for their neighbors and to be a neighbor. It's just, it's like, we're just, just absent from our conversations right now. It's everything so angry and polarized and mean and individualized. And I don't know, that just felt nurturing to me. And if you haven't ever read The Body Keeps a Score, like I just, there's no possible way I can recommend it high enough. Just no possible way. I learned so much about some things that were going on in my body just from pain that I just ex had accepted as being, I guess this is just how I feel. Or I guess maybe I'm just deficient here. And all those practices, he said, human touch, meditation, being outdoors, gentle, like body movement, connection. Those are all the things that healed me this year. I mean, just right down the list, bing, 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 right down the list. So anyway, I hope that was powerful for you. Please go follow him everywhere over at jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. I'll have this episode. I will have all the show notes and I'll have links to all of his work, his books, his website, his social handles, everything. So you can find out everything you want to know about this amazing human over there. This is a good one to share you guys with the people in your life that you love who have experienced trauma and want to be unstuck. This is a good one to send. So thank you so much for being here. So we all love you. Laura and her crew, Amanda and I love serving you guys. Thanks for being here. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.